welcome back to The Julie Norman Show. My guest today is Patrick Cashone. He's been working at the intersection of politics, religion, and health policy for the past three decades, and honestly, he's one of my favorite people to speak with on these topics. Patrick has been a teacher, a writer, he's worked on Capitol Hill, but his main role for the past 30 years or so has been with the Catholic Health Association. It's an organization that advocates and educates for health policy rooted in Catholic ethics and teaching. So I wanted to have this conversation for several reasons. First, I'm interested in what happens when religious freedoms and other civil liberties come into tension and how we deal with that as a state and as a society. I'm also attracted to concepts and ideas that scramble our usual assumptions of polarization. And Catholic health is one area that does that in ways that I didn't really know about and I don't think people always expect with policy positions that don't always fall neatly along party lines. And finally, I'm fascinated by the moral foundations and ethical frameworks that orient or nudge people towards different policy positions, and how even if we disagree, maybe trying to drill down or understand those moral motivations might help us understand others' positions and maybe even communicate a little bit better too. So this is a fun, rich, thoughtful conversation that I really enjoyed, and I hope that you will also. So now here is my conversation with Patrick Cashone. Well, Patrick Cashone, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Norman. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, especially with all the great guests that you've had in the past. I feel honored to have this opportunity. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And there's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but I'll just start with, um, you're the executive director of the Illinois Catholic Health Association. And so That's- what what is that? What do you do? Okay, Um, well, there's the National Catholic Health Association, which is uh, headquartered uh, in Washington. And then in Illinois, for the state of Illinois, we have the Illinois Catholic Health Association. So it's an association of um, any entity that's related to Catholic health. And Catholic health, meaning a broad um, definition of health. It's not just hospitals and nursing homes. It's also um, all the Catholic charities, all the hospitals, all the nursing homes, any sort of Catholic entity that fits into that broad definition of health. Uh, We're the association, they're members of the association. Uh, We do advocacy efforts both in Washington DC and in Springfield, the capital of uh, Illinois. Um, we also do education. So we both internal and external, we educate outside of ourselves, uh, affinity meetings, all of our ethicists will get together and we'll talk about ethical issues. Our mission people, they'll come together. Uh, and then each year we have an annual meeting, which is an educational sort of seminar for all our members. Um, so I think that's pretty much who we are. And you said you did the advocacy piece as well with state and national level. Can you tell me more about that with how CHA advocates for some of Catholic health in particular priorities with policymakers and kind of who is your target audience for that and how do you reach them? Yeah, well, first, I think I'd like to preface that. First, I have to tell your listeners that I am not a theologian. I am not a lawyer. Uh, I'm not an ethicist, okay? So having had that disclaimer, um, you know, I've touched on, I will touch on all those things, um, but just to be clear, um, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. So I've I've learned many of those things through the the process, but I'm not any of those things. So, um, and let me just preface, your advocacy question, uh, we don't call it lobbying, we call it advocacy, uh, we, because we are advocating on behalf of others, usually the poor and the underserved. But as I mentioned, I've been in this for 30 years. I just wanna say up front how I've seen our sort of mission, our outreach from an advocacy perspective change so drastically in the last 30 years. Uh, you know, when I started, um, you know, abortion for us was, wasn't even, I mean, we didn't, 
it was almost live and let live. We had the Hyde Amendment, you know, which said, you know, the federal government uh, would only pay in cases of rape, incest, life of the mother. And that was kind of the compromise. The government knew that we didn't do abortions. And it was, so when I came into this, it wasn't really uh, that big an issue for us. Um, because it was like, okay, you're Catholic. We know you don't do it. And, and we're not going to force you to do it. We're not going to uh, implicate you into the, you know, uh, as ethicists would say, um, remote or material cooperation in something. Well, that's all changed in, in 30 years. Um, and for instance, in 1993, we had the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, which it was in addition to the First Amendment, uh, it went so far to, to protect religious organizations. It was uh, actually, it was introduced in the Senate by Chuck Schumer, who's now the, the majority leader in the Senate. And, and it passed unanimously, close to unanimously, I think in the Senate and, and maybe one objection or so in the House, it wasn't a problem. Post that, 21 states passed similar bills, right? And again, the premise of that bill was if you are going to impose yourself on a religious organization, you have to meet two criteria. The first is that the government needs a, a strong, compelling interest. You know, there has to be a greater good need here. That's one. Two, you, if you're going to do it, you have to do it in the least restrictive way. Okay. So, that, that protected us over the last uh, 25 years or so. Now, uh, in fact, the, uh, the Equality Act that Congress is looking at now would supersede uh, the, um, they call it RIFRA, uh, Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And then you may remember uh, in Indiana uh, a year or two ago, they wanted to pass this at the state level, which again, 21 other states had already done without incident, then it became an issue. And I guess, you know, you take the, um, the contraception mandate that the Obama administration had. Yeah, again, we're, we weren't saying people can't take contraception, the government can't provide it or do it. It was when they didn't meet the criteria, they only met one criteria. The first criteria they could say, there's a compelling interest here. We, we, there's a greater need, this is a need, we need to do it. Okay, you could make that argument, but they couldn't, re we didn't think they could qualify for two, which is the least restrictive way. Now, if the government wants to give contraception, let the government give contraception. But what they were doing was making organizations like our, our spots of that, you know, we're sponsored by, uh, religious organizations. So our sponsors being women religious, men religious, would have to pay for that. And so they didn't quite, so the line's getting blurry. So getting back to your question, what do we do? Uh, lately, we've been doing a lot of effort around religious liberty. But we also, we, we did a lot uh, during the Trump administration on immigration reform. DACA, uh, he tried to tighten up what would uh, classify as um, a burden on society. You know, if you got Medicare or, you know, healthcare, well, that would count against you eventually getting a green card. It's very complicated, but yeah, so we fought those issues um, as well as religious liberty issues. Uh, so, uh, and obviously healthcare, we, we, we want universal healthcare. And there's something called prudential judgment that we call it. So, it's a Catholic thing. <laughs> Prudential judgment would be in, and when you look at uh, healthcare reform, the uh, ACA, the, the National Catholic Health Association supported that. Our association did not support it because oh, okay. it, it had, um, we wanted stronger language around uh, life issues. But we, we, we do agree, we do advocate for universal health insurance, that healthcare is a right. Uh, every, every, because of the dignity of every individual, healthcare should be a right. And that, but then all these issues come down to how do you provide it? You know, uh, yeah. okay, we all want health insurance. We think it's a right. 
and, and what's the best way to provide it. I don't know, different issues come up, but, but what we're finding is uh, like the um, Equity Act, if it passes, it would force Catholic physicians, Catholic nurses to participate in activities that we find objectionable. Like a nurse would have to participate in an abortion if, if she's in a facility or he or she. Euthanasia is another issue, you know. And again, if the state wants to provide those things and make them legal, we would oppose it. But if, if society says, no, we want this, we accept that. We just say, don't force us to participate in it because we can't. It's not that we won't, uh, we don't like it. We can't, we cannot participate in it. And so we're just, in many ways, I'm trying to get back to where we were 30 years ago, which is we understand you don't do it. We're provided, as a society, we're saying it, it's, it, it's can be provided, but don't force us to participate in it. And it gets back to, again, there's gotta be a compelling interest and, um, and the least restrictive way of doing it. Now, the other issues, uh, you know, we, we fought and, and there's going to be a Supreme Court uh, case coming up this year regarding uh, the city of Philadelphia and foster care. In Illinois, a couple of years ago, we were, our, through our Catholic charities, we were the gold standard of providing foster care. We had the largest uh, percentage of clients. we were looked at as the model for providing foster care and putting people, children into uh, homes. Well, then they said, the state said, well, you you have to put these children into same gender uh, families. And we said, well, we don't do two things. We don't put them into families, whether heterosexual and unmarried, or into same gender. We, we just don't do that. They said, well, you have to. And we took it to court. Uh, we, we tried to argue on the religious liberty question. It, it didn't get that far because the judge ended up saying, you know, you're, the state is contracting with you to provide this service. Okay. So we were like um, an NGO in your language, you know, we were, we're a non-government entity that was subcontracted from the state to provide uh, homes for these children. And the judge said, it's a contract with the state. The state can uh, design that contract any way they want. Um, you either accept the contract or you don't. We got out of the foster care business. Now, who got hurt in that scenario? And now I would, I would say if we were the only entity providing foster care, that would be a compelling interest with with the least restrictive. It's the only way we can do it. What we were saying is if they come to us and they, uh, 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 let's say an unmarried couple or a a same gender couple came to us and said, we want to foster a child, we would say, well, we can't do that, but this place does it or that place. There were other places. So no harm, no foul. They could get the care and, um, and we could still be providing high quality care to children. So again, it, it, that live and let live, uh, it, no, you have to do it and either you do it or you get out. And who, and we got out and who gets hurt, you know? Um, so those are some of the things we uh, grapple with. <laughs> Yeah, no, you said so much that I want to come back to, but I think I think it's so interesting how one how you said how much has just changed over the last 30 years. And also I think just this question of kind of marrying Catholic like social teaching, but also with some other issues that don't fall neatly along like political or partisan lines, which is something I think people assume a lot with something like Catholic health, that it would be, you know, very focused on abortion and reproductive rights, but maybe missing out on the sense of, you know, universal health care or immigration or some of these other issues. And that's one thing that I find is so interesting about the Catholic health perspective. Um, so I want to come back and ask you about some of that 
things that you mentioned, but I just wanted to ask you first, just to take a step back, just what first got you interested in politics and policy and health policy in particular? Well, let's see. Politics is easy. Uh, You know, it was around the kitchen table or uh, it was just, it was ever present in conversations, uh, again, amongst the family at the table or when, when guests came over. It, it was just, I don't know, it was just always there. And then, well, I, I went to college, went to graduate school, got a master's in government and public administration from the Great American University in Washington, D.C., which I think you are familiar with. Pretty familiar. And, you know, at one point I was going to, I was looking to be a teacher before I went to graduate school and I student taught. And I, after that experience of student teaching for a year, I thought I could be a teacher for 25 years and reach, what, five kids maybe or something, you know. But if you get into government, you could change things and impact a lot of lives for the, for the better. So I went to graduate school for government. You know, I worked in Congress, got involved in Catholic health care almost by accident. Uh, I, was, I was lobbying uh, health care issues in Washington. And uh, a friend of mine who worked for Senator Daschle at the time got this uh, job request, uh, um, yeah, and uh, she wasn't interested. She was happy where she was, but she knew that I was Catholic and uh, I had an interest in in those ethical issues. So she sent it over to me and said, yeah, you might want to apply. And and I did, and the more I looked into, I I started out working for the uh, Daughters of Charity uh, National Health System, so a religious order. And the more I learned about them and what they were doing, I just got more and more interested and, um, and I've been there for 30 years. Can I ask you, how have, how have your own political views shifted over that time? And do you see that maybe representative of, of a lot of Catholics over that same time period? Well, what I would say, and I have said, is I, I haven't changed that much. <laughs> What's changed is the spectrum, you know? I was here, I may have moved a little bit, but the left went way left, the right went way right, and I was kind of left there. As you look at Congress today, you know, there's very few moderates that are in that middle, and I would put myself there. So I don't know that I've changed that much, or as I've explained over the last 30 years, our politics have changed. I mean, I was comfortable in Catholic healthcare 30 years ago where things were, and I, and I am now, but I, I think the spectrum's changed as, I, as I've indicated. So, but I, I think I, um, the more I've learned about uh, Catholic social teaching, Catholic ethics, and, and you, you are absolutely right when, when you say, when people think Catholic healthcare, they always think what we don't do. You know, oh, they don't do abortion. It's always abortion, you know. <laughs> and I think many Catholics don't even understand how rich the faith is. It's very rich. It's very diverse. It's, it, it, as I mentioned, uh, there's subsidiarity. There's a double effect. There's prudential judgment. All these things, those are rich, rich concepts that have been studied for 2,000 years. But we, it's always, oh, Catholics, two things abortion, and don't go there, they won't let you die. <laughs> you know, don't go to a Catholic hospital, they won't let you die. Or <laughs> the other misnomer is, oh, if a, if a woman is pregnant and, uh, you know, they're going to take the child first. That, that's another misconception. I mean, I, and I can go into detail on how wrong all those things are, but that's the perception. And I think it's a, per- <clears throat> excuse me, a perception of many Catholics as well as non-Catholics. And you said some of the tenets that undergird a lot of that. What is double effect? I don't know what that is. Okay. Again, people will say, uh, don't go to a Catholic hospital. They won't let you die. Okay. Uh, Because we think life at all costs, life is precious, which it is. But let's say we have a patient who's in a great deal of pain. Okay. And uh, they're near the end of life, multiple chronic conditions. But we want to treat their pain. What's our what what's what's our objective? Our objective is to treat the pain. Okay, but we know we don't want to kill the patient. But we know by giving them a high dose of morphine 
to treat the pain, the likelihood is that person's going to die because of the high dose of morphine. So are we killing that patient? No, it's a double effect. It's, we want this, this is, this is what we want, this is the outcome we want over here, but the double effect is we're gonna have this, this other negative outcome. So, um, so we, and, and that's just one example of how you do, what's your intent in doing something and what's the consequences that you're not intending, but so it's a double effect. And we grapple with that all the time in Catholic healthcare, all the time, you know, but that's probably the best example of high dose of morphine to someone at the end of life and they died. And, and you know, it's not euthanasia, it's not physician assisted suicide, it's treating the individual and treating what is in front of you at that time. And that would be considered okay then? Yes. Yeah, and I was again, if we're going to talk ethics, let me just add, you know, Harry Truman said, I'd like to find a one handed economist, you know, because economists go on one hand, the other hand, sometimes you need a one handed ethicist too. But (laughs) all this stuff is debated, but we debate it all the time, all the time. But it's really, I mean, that's one of of the reasons I wanted to to speak with you, because I feel like most policy at some level is driven by some kind of at least sense of morals or ethics. And for a faith-based or religious organization, it's quite a little bit more clear anyway, where that, that ethical code or moral code is coming from, like from the religion. So that's a bit more of a direct link that you can look to it. But I, you kind of assume that whatever policy people are pushing for, they have some kind of moral compass guiding it behind them. And so it's really interesting for me to see something like Catholic health that kind of puts that front and center and really grapples with that quite in the open but also mindful that you know, other people come to other conclusions are also coming from some kind of moral place, but it's they're often reaching very different conclusions from that. So it's just, it's interesting with what I think faith-based organizations that do speak quite openly about some of the ethical dilemmas behind some of these decisions, whether everyone agrees with them at the end of the day or not. And that exactly is what I mean by prudential judgment. Two people can come to uh, a conclusion ethically, and one might choose A and one might choose B. That's pr- uh, prudential judgment. That it, it's what they find to be prudent. You touched on a, a number of kind of different issues that come up all the time for Catholic health um, with with end of life and, and abortion and, and other things. I was wondering during this last year with COVID, were there specific faith-related health issues that came up that you ended up working on or being concerned about? We had a a number of Zoom meetings with our chaplains, with our mission uh, uh, leaders. Um, The challenge was how to be present for people when you can't physically be in contact with them, but you wanna be present. So there were a lot of learnings, uh, beautiful learnings, really, providing uh, what most people know as last rites, but anointing of the sick. Chaplains, they put themselves at risk to be in the room. Uh, How we tried to unite family members uh, at the time of death. Not only taking care of the patient, we had to then take care of our own. We, We set up like a, a helplines where uh, nurses, doctors, uh, other uh, employees could use that as they were struggling with this. Um, we had one chaplain uh, who's taking care of sick patients whose parents came in with COVID and, and she couldn't go see them. She couldn't be present with them. And you know, she's trying to do her job at the same time her, 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 her own parents are in there. Luckily, they, they both uh, survived and did well, but the, the emotional struggle that our, our employees went through, basically, it was a struggle to be present at the bedside with, with these people and also uh, being in community with them, the family and all that. That, that was a, a, a huge struggle for us. Um, uh, Ethically and other, I mean, just like everyone else, I mean, Catholic healthcare wasn't any different in, in this uh, pandemic than 
than any other hospital or nursing home. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. I want to come back to a bit of more of what you said about feeling like the political system itself has just changed a lot and maybe changed some of the conversations around health policy, but also just policy more broadly and the sense of feeling like, like you've stayed in the same spot, but like the left and the right have both gone in different directions. I guess it seems to me like there's, I, I feel like there's probably a lot of people who feel that way. And yet we continually hear about how polarized the country is. And I think is in many ways. And yet I think there's probably a lot of people who feel kind of left in that no man's land of the middle. So I guess, do you feel, do you feel that you are an exception kind of in that space? Or do you think there's a lot of people who feel maybe, you know, a a little bit adrift, so to speak, in the the more polarized, like with, with kind of the left and the right, maybe going a little bit further out than they were in the past? I think uh, most people are in the middle. Um, I think politicians work for the benefit of politicians and that meaning being um, if, if I can get, uh, if I can find where the rub is, if I can find that, that hard issue to motivate my base, to raise money, uh, it, it, it all works to their advantage. Their, their advantage doesn't come from compromise because it's a zero-sum game now. The other person has to lose because I have to win. And the way I win is to create controversy and to get one group to fight another group because then they need me. They, I can fundraise off of that. Um, uh, and so I think the system is corrupt. Um, and, uh, but I think, I think, but I also think that's changing as I just, to the negative because of social media and the media itself. People are starting to read what they read, what they wanna read. What, they wanna read what tells them what they think. You know, So you got this group listening to MSNBC, this group listening to Fox, this person reading Slate, you know, this person reading, you know, something else, and they they go to their comfort level, and they read online comments that that support where they are, and people use the media. I think used to be more balanced, um, but as it became unbalanced, it was incumbent upon the individual to do the hard work to read this, then read that, to, you know, to find out, well, why do they feel that way? And why are they against that? And where am I? Just sit back and think, what do I think about this instead of being told what to think? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's changing for the worse. I, I think it, it obviously, uh, uh, you know, uh, compromise hasn't happened in a very long time, uh, but I think still most people would say that they're in the middle, you know, but um, I don't, more and more, I think they're not. Um, so I just contradicted myself. So <laughs> I would make a great politician. <laughs> uh, you would indeed. Um, well, I think one other part of this polarization divide that you at least hear about a lot is a religious secular divide also in America or in American politics. Is that something that you've seen or like I said, do you, are the kinds of issues that you have to work across, does that kind of disprove that a little bit? Like, I, I feel like maybe there's both things happening at the same time in a way. Well, um, yeah, uh, well, first, we, uh, I mean, I see polling, polling about a quarter of uh, the population uh, feels that they're, um, they're not faith, they're not religious of any, and that's growing, so that's happening, but, uh, we do both. And let me give you an example. Um, you know, physician-assisted suicide is legal in like seven states. It hasn't come to Illinois yet. We, we assume that it will. Now, our argument would be 
and will be, you know, we, we'll, we'll look at it from a religious perspective. You know, we think that all life is sacred and, uh, and, and it, it, it's from conception to natural death. So that would be the religious argument. But then we, would, we have secular arguments as well that, um, you know, what, what does it mean for the disabled? You know, we have a high rate of suicide among veterans and, and, and teenagers. Do we want to send a message that, that this is uh, a good, it's a positive, uh, it's okay? Um, you know, do we worry about uh, the aged parent who is spending a lot of their money on long-term care or chronic care, and I want to leave money to my children, so why don't I just kill, you know, why, I want to end my, you know, there's secular arguments that I think are very sound and reasonable, as well as the religious foundation that we come from. And we, we do that with all issues. Um, we don't just come at it uh, from a, a religious perspective, because most of our religious perspective comes out of uh, human ethics and social uh, you know, understanding, you know, is it good to be in community? Yes. Uh, you know, if everyone, if it's all individual, me, 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 my body, my death, or, you know, th then where's the community? You know, I just had a good friend pass away uh, and his wife took care of him and other people came in and, and, and it was a community. So it was, the death wasn't like, sanitized off to the side and you take a pill and I'll just die and save everybody the uh, the trouble. Actually, the trouble is the gift, you know, that we get to care for someone. But anyway, there's that's just one issue that multi-faceted. It's not just, oh, you're Catholic, you think, you know, life is precious. And, and then they kind of wave you off and go, okay, well, we're going to, you know. So... That's why I love my job. I mean, it's 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 a lot of fun. It's not just running around going, uh, "Don't do this, don't do that." I'm Catholic. Um, it's very interesting. How how would you like to see the the public narrative around religion be be different? Um, like how how are the right and the left speaking about religion in ways that are either getting it right or getting it wrong? You know. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel, speak if you must. You know, you don't have to go out shouting and screaming this, that. Just live your life, advocate uh, in a way that doesn't denigrate someone else, doesn't, um, uh, doesn't have to be zero sum. It's it's uh, treat each other with respect, whether whether that's an individual. Yeah, I tried to do this. It was interesting. The ACLU, which used to we used to be in tandem with much of the time, they came out with a report about a couple of years ago, saying how bad we were, you know, Catholic healthcare because we didn't do these things. And you know, a lot of people were and the Catholic and faithful people were upset about the report. So what I did is I invited the author of that report from the ACLU and from, uh, from uh, actually from New York and then their local ACLU representative in Illinois to come and meet with us, meet with our ethicists, our, our mission people, myself, so that we could explain all these details that I'm talking to you about, that it's more nuanced than just don't do this. Um, and it got, it got nowhere. I mean, they were not, it, you know, they sat there, they listened, they nodded, and then they went off and uh, continued to say what they wanted to say. I mean, you, you, I just tried to educate them. And that's all you can do. Uh, you can't control what other people say or do. You can only control what you say and do. So, uh, and, and, you know, I thought it was very interesting uh, that, you know, the Pope just went to Iraq and, you know, uh, he, he talked about, um, he He's, talked about how Abraham is every Muslims, Jews, Catholics see him as the, as the father of, of religion. And, and, you know, he's looking for common ground there. And I thought, you know, 
and he met with Sistani. So, um, you know, it can be done if, if you get the right people with the right mindset. Because um, uh, the persecution of Christians around the globe is, is greatly ignored. Um, at, but so are, you know, other religious groups. Uh, uh, so it's the human condition. But again, you can only control yourself and your actions. So, yeah, it was it was interesting to see the Pope there, though, and I think especially especially as we were saying with COVID, where you aren't seeing anybody go anywhere, and then the Pope, like eighty two or whatever, is is there in Iraq of all places, and um, and yeah, just seeing the pictures. And I remember when he went to um, Israel Palestine as well. Like people just just were so excited to see, I mean, regardless of faith, right? Like Christian, Jewish, Muslim, like we're just so like inspired that he was coming and, and coming with, um, you know, in places that have been just torn often with, with conflict that is along religious lines to have someone like the Pope come and try and use that religious um, foundation to inspire unity rather than division, I think is just, it was, I don't know. For me, it was a nice thing to see in a place that I've been and has and that has suffered a lot. And it's it won't solve anything like everything or something like that. But it's it's meaningful that he went nonetheless. Well, I just read an article uh, on his visit about that, and you know the question is out: Does it make any difference? And the other point was, uh, in the long run, it might. You know, not immediately. Uh, they thought it was very positive that. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it as Sistani is mm-hmm. the, yeah they, because it took apparently there's a lot of back channels to get that meeting to happen and it and it it, it was a message to uh, to his followers it's okay to converse with Catholics or Christians um, the 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 interesting thing they said was how uh, uh, Iran is going to react to that because uh it, but Sistani is 90 years old and the Pope's not, you know, you know I mean, so if he dies, you know, uh, uh, where is it all going to go in the future? We'll see. But it was definitely the right step, the first step, because um, not only COVID, but then the violence in, that's still uh, active in Iraq. It was very, it was very brave, I think, of the, the Pope to go there. And, and the article also um, uh, used the analogy of how John Paul, St. Uh, John Paul II, um, went to Poland three times, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 then what came out of that with the the, uh, the crumbling of the Iron Curtain? You know, it takes time, but you have to, you know, you have to make the efforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was is there anything that that you believe that most other people you know don't think is true, or vice versa? Something that you think is true that most people you know think is false? Hmm. You know, I, well, obviously, uh, I am a religious person, but and there's a lot of people who are atheists, so they must think uh, uh, I'm wrong. Um, but you know, sometimes I find, and talking to atheists, not all. I have a good friend that's an atheist, and we have very deep, long conversations. He keeps coming back to the Big Bang. I keep come back to, you know, what was there before the Bang and all that. But um, I think a lot of people who are atheists, they're not really. Uh, it's not that they don't believe in God. I, I think more and more I, I get the sense that they're just anti-religious. You know, it's not that they have a belief system that is unlike my friend who who's an atheist and his belief system is. There was nothing there. This uh, this was a material um, uh, big bang, uh, but he's not anti-religious. He he listens to me, understands me. Uh, we debate things. Uh, he puts me in a corner. I put him in a corner. But it's very rare to have that kind of conversation with someone who uh, who claims to be an atheist, but who I think is more anti-religion. Uh, uh, so I run into that quite a bit. Um, like where people just aren't respecting religion, you mean, even if they aren't religious or? 
yeah, they see it as it's it's something bad, it's something negative. And I get the sense, you know, that we really don't want your voice in the public square. Please just stop talking and go away. Um, instead of saying, you know, I hear you, I disagree with you for these reasons. It's, it's, no, I, I don't want to hear it. Um, I, yeah, it's very, it, it is, I would say, uh, negative in that sense. Is there anything on which your own thinking has changed? My thinking changes every day <laughs> <laughs> on different things. But um, yeah, I think it's healthy to change. It's healthy to rethink things. You know, I, I have to say on the question of abortion, I've changed. Uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, again, when I first got into Catholic health care, it really wasn't an issue because we, we didn't do it. I didn't have to confront it. Um, and, you know, my thinking was, yeah, I'm against it. I wouldn't do it, but I don't think I can impose myself on someone else. Um, so my thinking has evolved on that to, to the point where I started thinking, because I'm, I'm a registered independent. I'm not, I'm not affiliated with any party, but at one point I was uh, affiliated with the Democratic Party. And, and I thought I'm a Democrat because I think government needs to be there. Uh, as Bobby Kennedy said, uh, government needs to be where evil needs an adversary, okay? Where someone, the poor, the underserved, it needs assistance and help and then I, I came to the realization, who is the most poor, underserved, helpless, except a child in the womb? That's who government should protect. So again, talking about earlier, we talked about coming at it from a religious perspective and a secular perspective. I can come at that from a religious perspective saying, I think all life is sacred. But I can also come at it from a, a societal position of, I wanna help the poor, the underserved, uh, the unvoiced, you know, and who is that? That's that's the migrant farmer. That's the child in the in utero. I mean, uh, now the argument to that, and, and I've run into it. You know, they think uh, you know you're you're not a person until you're outside your mother's body. Uh, you know that you know you're just a clump of cells or whatever. I don't believe that. And and but my strong. Uh, uh, both religious and, and sort of that uh, democratic idea of helping those and assisting with those and protecting those, the least among us is to me, my, my thinking changed because I thought of, I, I, I think my, my, my thinking shifted from the mother because I, mean, I said, I wouldn't do it, but I wouldn't tell someone else what they should do. I think my, my thinking shifted from the mother to the, to the unborn child. Uh, and that's why I've changed. Um, but again, that's my belief. Uh, and other people believe other things. And, and then I come back to, well, if society says that that's what it is. A Roe v. Wade, obviously. Society said it's, then fine, just leave me out of it. I, I, I don't want to participate. Thank you. Yeah, and the abortion, as you said, it has just become uh, much more inflamed. I think it kind of goes in waves, at least what I've I've seen. Um, I, I think there's probably, I think there's more room for discussion within that debate than I think is often appreciated. Like it, it tends to be framed as very, very either or, yet I think a lot of Americans are somewhere in the middle of it with... I don't know, being, being willing to give some exceptions on, on one side or the other. Um, but what you just said about kind of wanting to be left out of it, I guess when you were talking about things like uh, like same gender couples trying to adopt kids and kind of the role of, of government to, to protect, uh, you know, kind of disadvantaged groups. I mean, that to me is just such an interesting tension between religious freedoms and and other kinds of civil liberties when they kind of come kind of head to head. And I think you kind of like an adoption thing is a good example of that. And I was wondering, do you ever think there, have there been any situations where you think it, it is right for the government to nudge even 
religious or nonprofit or private groups towards a certain direction, um, even if they have a right to, you know, oppose it or whatever. Like, do you have you have has there any been an experience where you've seen that pressure slash nudging work in a positive way, or is that just something that is just usually kind of backfires? Hmm. You know, I, I I'm going to go back to. Uh... The Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, the, the two things. If, if the government can show a compelling interest and, and it's the least restrictive way of imposing it, yeah, then I have no problem with that. Let's, I mean, this doesn't involve us, but let's just take the case of, uh, you know, uh, the gay couple that's marrying and wants their cake made. You know, if there's no other bakeries there, then you got to make the cake. You know, they're, the cake maker is saying, you can buy anything in the store. In fact, they, they were uh, customers of theirs. You can buy anything. I just can't make something. That, that's my participation. But, you know, again, if there were no other options, this is it. You, you got to do it um, because of, um, I would say, the dignity of the individual. Um, you know, and, and it gets complicated with the, these things because, um, you know, we believe, Catholics believe that everyone is born with inherent dignity. It's inherent. You can't give it away. You can't, uh, you can't take it away. Uh, as an individual, you have dignity and you have, and I would have to treat you with dignity as far as I can, as far as I can go. I can sell you a cake. I can, you know, I just can't make it. But if I was the only one, yeah, I'd have to make the cake. Um, so, uh, but I have yet to run into a situation where there was no other way that, that, a, that a, again, in my experience with, with my Catholic faith, my Catholic advocacy, I haven't ever run into an issue where there was no out. There was no one else doing it. You had to do it. Um, uh, I, I can't think of one, Julie. Yeah. But I will say that if it came to that point, yes, um, uh, we would we would have to do one of two things. We would we would have to either sell all our hospitals, sell get out as we got out of foster care. Hmm. We we would say you know we we can't. Either we can't do it, we'll sell our hospitals to a, a secular group and they can do it, we're out. Or, and it depends on what the, I mean, we're talking in a, a, a vacuum here. I mean, we, uh, it's hypothetical. I can't think of anything where someone else can't provide the same good that we're providing. Um, but I guess if, if, if it came to that, we'd either, uh, get out, let someone else do it, or, or find a way that we could provide it. Um, I, I, well, maybe this is what you're looking at. Gay marriage, you know, we, we, we're against gay marriage. We think marriage is between a man and a woman. It's for procreation and all that kind of stuff, okay? That's the theology. We have, we have employees who, prior to, who were uh, gay, fine, we don't have a problem with it. We have couples that have gotten married um, now we have to provide benefits to our employees, right? So do we do we say, oh no, we're not going to give you benefits? No, we provide benefits to uh, same gender uh, employees of ours. Um, you know, it, it's not like, oh no, uh, we're not going to give you health care or dental care or any benefits because. We give it to married couples, but we don't recognize you as married. No, we don't do that. So it, it, it falls more along the lines of what I'm saying, which is you treat everyone with dignity. Well, I know we've been talking for a while. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that uh, that you wanted to, to chat about or bring up? No, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, and... Um, you know, it'll be interesting how others who view your podcast react to, <laughs> to it. But I, I would hope that they would uh, listen to it with an open mind and um, that they would uh, respect uh, 
me respect uh, the Catholic faith, whether they agree with it or not, because uh, we would respect them. So. All right, well, that's what we're going for. Um, well, and then I know that in addition to doing all the, the politics and health and ethics stuff you've been talking about, you're also a writer. So I'm curious to know what books you would recommend to listeners. <laughs> well, mine, of course. <laughs> no. What I would recommend, and, and this comes out of much of what we talked about and, and social media and uh, the media in general, uh, yeah, I think most of your listeners are familiar with, uh, you know, George Orwell's 1984, but there was a predecessor to that. It was written in the 1930s uh, called A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Uh, that preceded uh, George Orwell. Um, and I think they were precedent in, in looking to the future. And I would say, if, you're if your listeners don't have time to read it, I would have them listen to the three minute or so song from Cat Stevens, which is, where do the children play? Uh, there's a line in there, he says, will they make us laugh? Will they make us cry? Will they tell us when to live? And will they tell us when to die? And that's, uh, I, I, I see, you know, we talk about abortion, euthanasia, we're going to tell you when to live and we're going to tell you when to die. And, you know, government and, uh, and, and media and the messaging and people listening to what they want to hear. And um, so I would recommend uh, A Brave New World and listening to Where Do the Children Play? All right. Well, Patrick Asheron, thank you so much. Dr. Norman, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you once again to Patrick Cashone. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like this podcast, please just take a few seconds to subscribe, give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Recommend it to a friend, spread the word. Thank you all for listening. Take care, stay well, and tune in again next time.